This morning we're honoring uh, the graduates that are within our congregation, and I wanted to bring to you a message specifically designed to that end. And so we're going to take a break from our series in First Peter this morning and as well next week as we have another topic to take up for the congregation. And consider for our reading in God's Word, Revelation, the 20th chapter, verses 11 to 15. So please turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, where we'll begin our reading at the 11th verse. Hear now the word of God at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, even the lake of fire. And if any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. June is the month for weddings and for graduations. You can tell that if you um, go to any stationery store or actually pass just about any kind of uh, general marketing uh, franchise these days because that's the theme that's emphasized, weddings and graduations. And we have a number of this year's graduates within our own congregation. We have graduates from junior high and graduates from high school and graduates from junior college and graduates from college or university. I'm not aware that we have any postgraduate degrees being granted in our congregation this year, but that's a possibility in the future as well. Those of you who are not um, walking through a graduation ceremony this year uh, still know what it's like to be a student, I dare say, and probably know what it's like to go through a graduation day. Most all of you have at some time or another celebrated a graduation from some school or another. Believe me, it's nice to come to the end of a school term. Everyone likes summer vacation. So when the school term ends, we get this time of vacation. But it's even nicer to come to the, requir- to the end of the required set of terms needed for graduation from school. If it's nice to get to summer vacation in general, it's even nicer to get to summer vacation when you finally get to graduate and all of your terms are finished. You see, there's a satisfying sense of finality about that, of accomplishment and relief when graduation's finally upon you. And I can tell you, I know very well what uh, such feelings are like. After all, I was a student for 25 uninterrupted years of my life, from kindergarten to the awarding of my doctorate. And in those 25 years, especially the last few, 
in those 25 years, I think I experienced every student emotion conceivable, from delight to dread. I learned in and out the life and the habits and the mentality, the schemes, the priorities and the practices of being a student. I was, if ever there was one, a professional student. And so you have standing before you this morning someone who knows what he's talking about when he talks about being a student and the relief of coming to graduation. Uh, an experience which is just etched upon my memory and upon my very soul, I think, is one which I had at three dramatic times in my life. The circumstances, the surroundings were all quite different, but the inner experience, the inner feeling was really quite the same, was identical in all three of these cases. It was the feeling of finishing my final exams in the last term of my work at some school. I have particularly vivid memories of uh, that from my senior year in college, especially from my last days at Westminster Seminary and then the moment that I had completed all the requirements for my doctorate at the University of Southern California. And it's hard to describe, I'm not sure I should even try, I don't think it can be communicated, but just try to get in your own mind what it would be like when you finally get to the end of studying for a couple of master's degrees or a doctorate and to realize from this point on nobody else owns my time. Nobody else can lay requirements on me. No one else can make me come forward and show that I know the material and inspect my study and require me to write a paper and grade my achievement and all that. I'm done. It's hard to describe the exhilaration that one feels, especially if you've been at it for 25 years. When I finished my doctorate, I thought to myself, well, that's it. I mean, no one can ever put me through an examination again. It's a tremendous feeling. And what you have to understand, and I hope recall from your own experience, at least in some limited way, is that a student lives continually under the awareness that a final exam is coming. That is the const that's the pall of gloom that hangs over every student's head continually until the term is over. There's going to be a final exam. And it's that awareness that shapes, it's that awareness that guides, it's that awareness that corrects, should correct, and that awareness that determines just about everything that a student will do with respect to the course of study in which he or she is enrolled. Just think about it from the very beginning. Shall I enroll for this course? Well, do I need it for graduation? Will it have a final exam? How tough are the requirements? Shall I attend class today after I've enrolled? Well, I mean, there is a final exam coming, and if I, I either have to get the notes or I have to go to class so that I'll be prepared for that exam. Should I pay attention to this discussion that's going on? Should I take notes on this particular discussion? Well, I can assure you, I know what students think, because I've been a student, and now that I'm a teacher, repeatedly at the high school where I teach, my seniors will get into some really complicated discussion, and about halfway through, some meek little girl will raise her hand and say, Dr. Bonson? I say, yes. I say, is this going to be on the final exam? <laughs> it's not important whether we get to the answer or not. The importance is whether we're going to have to give this on the final exam. Should I pay attention? Should I take notes? Will this be on the exam? Is this material important? The importance of material is usually judged by a student 
by whether it's going to be on the final exam. It may, you know, I think sometimes the most um, important things for the soul of the individual that I'm teaching may be off the record sort of thing, or off the podium anyway. They're not in my notes, but I'm saying something that really hits something that's a life and death issue, and then I'll have somebody say, well, but is that going to be on the exam? <laughs> People determine the importance of material by the examination. Should you read this article, this assigned book? Should you do these problems out of your textbook? Well, is it going to be on the final exam? And with that final exam coming up soon, maybe tomorrow, we ask ourselves, should I watch TV? Should I go out? Should I do anything else? Should I bother to commit this material to memory? What is it I can forget about this course? All of these questions from beginning to end are determined by what? The final exam. Every decision relevant to a course of study will be made by the student in light of what he or she expects to be on the final exam. And this can become oppressive. It can become a burden to be lifted, a slavery to be escaped. And thus, in light of these things, you can understand the great relief when all the requirements are finally fulfilled and the final exams are over and the graduation can free the student from that constant pressure in his or her life. And so imagine the emotions through which a student would go if you were to inform him that although it appeared that all the final exams were over and graduation was just ahead, that nevertheless there was one last final exam that he still must undergo and pass. Well, I'll tell you, if, if I had turned in all of my cards at the university for my doctorate and thought all my exams and all my papers and all my inspections were over, and if I had walked out and somebody came up and said, oh, but you forget, there's one more exam now. Well, one more thing, boy, that'd be a really crushing sort of thing to hear. Uh, but you see, that's what I want to tell you graduates this morning. Whether it, it has a crushing effect on you or not, you must realize that there is one last final exam through which you must go. Everyone else must go through that same final exam. It's not a final exam so that you'll get out of high school or get out of college or junior high or whatever. It's an exam that everybody's going to go through. And even though the diplomas have been awarded, there's still going to be that last final exam to keep before our eyes. One more day of testing and inspection lies ahead. Revelation, the 20th chapter, verses 11 to 15, speaks of that great and final judgment of God through which every single one of us must pass. And we must be careful to live our lives in light of that coming day of final examination. I think it's interesting if I might speak to you for a moment about a philosopher whose name was Ludwig Wittgenstein, perhaps the best-known linguistic analysis philosopher of the 20th century. In the last 30 years, the biggest name in philosophy. Wittgenstein once said that the reason he could not be a Christian is because he could not live constantly with the thought of the final judgment before his mind. As he saw it, a Christian is somebody who lives his or her life constantly aware that God will judge us, that God will judge our every action, word, and thought. And Wittgenstein said he just could not live with that pressure of the final exam always being upon him. But it's that 
final exam that I want you graduates and all of you who have graduated maybe in other years as well to keep before your minds this morning. I'm going to ask you three questions as we consider this final examination that God's going to be giving us. First of all, what has made your learning possible? Now some of you today or in the past have graduated from schools which were not Christian schools. Even those of you who go to Christian schools, however, may not have had set before you in the way that you ought to have had set before you the foundation for learning. The Bible tells us much more than most people realize about the nature of knowledge and how we acquire it. Proverbs 1.7 tells us the basis for all knowing. Proverbs 1.7, if you have your Bibles, you might be prepared to be turning back and forth to some verses as we do a little study together this morning. The fear of Jehovah is the beginning of knowledge, but the foolish despise wisdom and instruction. The head of knowledge, the rosh of knowledge in Hebrew, the head, the chief part, what we would call the basis in our idiom of knowledge, is the fear of the Lord. Those who do not reverence God and see themselves as living in God's universe and under the controlling hand of God do not have a basis for learning anything. In Colossians 2.3, Paul says, in him, in Christ, are deposited all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So whatever is known about atomic fission, and whatever is known about the cure of polio, and whatever is known about geometry, and American literature, and philosophy, and geography, and history, Whatever is known about any field has its basis in Jesus Christ as the creator of heaven and earth and as the sovereign controller of all things and the judge of all mankind. It's the word of Jesus Christ that gives us a world and life view, an outlook on all things that makes learning possible. Or consider Psalm 36, verse 9. The psalmist says in Psalm 36, the ninth verse, for with thee is the fountain of life, in thy light shall we see light. The psalmist, using the idiom of his own day, says, we wouldn't be able to see the created lights round about us if it were not, first of all, for the light of God himself. It's only in the light of God's revelation that we can understand anything about the world. In thy light we see light. And you take away the light of God and all men walk in darkness despite their efforts at promoting or generating light. The Bible tells us that those who do not understand this very simple premise that one must first reverence the Creator and see the world as He sees it in order to learn things about it, those who will not endorse that premise are ignorant people. Some of the most worldly wise and renowned scholars in the world, those who receive Nobel Prize and Pulitzer Prizes and all the rest are among the most ignorant people in the eyes of God. The Bible tells us this, for instance, in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. If we look at verses 17 and 18, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says at verse 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk 
in the vanity of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart. Boy, he really lays it on thick here. Notice, Paul says, I don't want you to walk like the unbelievers do, like the pagans do, as the Gentiles do. Their minds are vain, futile. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them and the hardening of their hearts. Those who do not begin by reverencing God eventually end up being fools in their outlook. Romans 1.21 makes that unmistakably clear. In the outlook of God's inspired word, we read, Because knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. When men will not acknowledge God, when they try to set about to construct their own outlook on life and to formulate their own values by which to live and to come up with their own schemes to justify what they know and to tell them what is real, when men try to formulate their own philosophy and suppress the truth about God, they end up having darkened hearts and their reasoning will be foolish and vain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul makes his animosity toward the systems of worldly philosophy rather clear when he says, Where is the wise? Where is the disputer of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And although this sermon this morning is not on that subject, if you have any questions about that, I want to encourage you to take my course in the history of philosophy or pick up some tapes that I've done on that to read a little bit by Francis Schaeffer on the history of culture. You'll learn very quickly that though the world flaunts its knowledge, its learning, its erudition, the fact of the matter is that the world has not been able to provide for mankind an outlook that makes sense out of science or ethics or human dignity, an outlook that can justify knowing anything. Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For the world, in its own wisdom, refused to submit to what it considered the foolishness of God found in the cross of Jesus Christ. The only foundation available to understand the world and to learn things about the world is the word of Jesus Christ. And we all should know this. We've sung it since Sunday school days. It's the story that Jesus tells in Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 24 to 28. Jesus says, Everyone, therefore, that hears these words of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon the rock. And everyone that heareth these words of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and smote upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall thereof. And when it came to pass, Jesus finished these words. The multitudes were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. Jesus says, if you want to have a foundation for your life, for your philosophy, for your outlook, you must build upon my words. And if you refuse to build upon my rock words, you're a fool. And great will be the destruction 
of that house that you're building. And so let me come back to my question to you graduates, either in this year or in previous years, to all of you, what has made your learning possible? How do we know anything about the world? How do we have any moral standards by which to live? How can we be sure of anything at all if it weren't for the fact that we first know God through His Son, Jesus Christ? But I have a second question for you. Having seen that it's God that makes possible everything that we learn, to what use will we put our learning as graduates? To what use will you put this learning that you have? We find in Genesis, the first chapter, verses 26 to 28, something called by the theologians the cultural mandate. The mandate to develop culture to the glory of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. From the very moment of man's creation, God expected him to learn, to learn about the world and to make special use of that learning, use that's called dominion, to have dominion over the world, to subdue the world, to make every aspect of what we know about the world, whether it be about the birds and the lions and the giraffes, or about nuclear fission, or about American literature, everything we know about the world, and every aspect of man's life is to be made to serve the purposes of God, to glorify God, and to advance His kingdom in the world. All knowledge is to serve the ends of God's kingdom and glory. And thus, Paul can say in Colossians 1, verse 18, that in all things, Christ is to have the preeminence. That's a terrific motto, it seems to me, for education. In all things, Christ preeminent. Christ is the reason that I learn about geography and history. Christ is the reason I learn about philosophy and literature. Christ is the reason that I learn about math and physics or computers or whatever it may be today. Christ is to be made preeminent in all fields of endeavor, and it's for his sake that we learn whatever we learn. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says that every thought is to be made captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. Not just our thoughts about vaguely religious subjects or, if you will, broadly religious interest about God and about worship and about Sunday and about the Bible and meditation and evangelism. No, but Christ is to be obeyed when I think about money. And Christ is to be obeyed when I think about what is real and what isn't real, when I philosophize. And Christ is to be obeyed when I think about geography or politics, or family life, or physics, or science, or origins, or anything else. So that in our classrooms, we should have written from the blackboards to the volleyballs, Christ preeminent. That's why we live. That every thought we have 
might be made obedient to Him. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even the way you tie your shoes. Even the reason for which you tie your shoes. Even your selection of shoes to wear. Even where you go in those shoes and what you do. In, and everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. For you see, God is expecting a return on his investment. Remember, graduates, whether of this year or previous years, remember, graduates, God made you. God made you for a purpose. And God gave you a mind, a good, sound mind. And God has provided in his word, and especially in his son, a basis for learning things. And God has given you abilities so that you may learn and you may exercise certain things in this world and accomplish certain things. And God, therefore, has invested a lot in you. And God now wants a return on that investment. Jesus makes this unmistakably clear. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, the well-known text having to do with the talents. Um, that's an interesting pun that we have in English. The word is talent, referring to a unit of... Um, of uh, financial measurement. It's, it's a weight of money in the ancient world, but it comes over in English talent. We think of an ability. And of course the application is to talents in that second sense as well. But look what Jesus says. I think sometimes we know the story vaguely, but we don't pay attention to the details. For it was as when a man going into another country called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his several ability, and he went on his journey. And then, of course, the one with the five talents goes out and trades, and the one with the two goes out and trades, and they double their investment. When the master comes back, he calls them to an accounting, and he's pleased with what they've done, and he rewards them further because they have brought back uh, a return on his investment. But I want you to notice especially the words now to the servant that was not going to bring in a return on the Lord's investment. Verse 24, And he also that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou didst not sow, and, scatter, and, and gathering where thou didst not scatter. And I was afraid, and went away and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, thou hast thine own. But his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I did not scatter thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the bankers and at my coming I should have received back mine own with interest take ye away therefore the talent from him and give it unto him that hath the ten talents for unto every one that hath shall be given and he shall have abundance but from him that hath not even that which he hath shall be taken away that's where we usually end the reading mentally. But Jesus now adds, And cast ye out the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Common gospel image for hell. And Jesus says to those who will not give an a return on God's investment, and you shall be cast into the outer darkness. 
You are unworthy of the kingdom of God if you take all these privileges, all these benefits, this foundation for doing something for the sake of God's glory and the advance of his kingdom. And if you don't do so, then you don't belong to his kingdom in the first place. And so graduates this morning, I ask you first, what has made your learning possible? And I ask you second, with what or for what purpose will you use that which you have learned? To what use will you put all of this knowledge that you have now gained? The third question I have for you is, in light of these two things, are you ready for the final exam? Are you ready for that final exam over what you have learned by God's grace? Paul says in Romans 14:12, So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Who is going to be the proctor and the reader of our final exams? The Bible says Jesus Christ. For all judgment has been delivered into the hands of Jesus Christ himself. Acts 17.31 says God has given testimony to all the world by the resurrection that this man will judge every other human being. And who is it that will be judged? 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive those things which have been done in our body, whether good or evil. All men will eventually have to pass their examination before Jesus Christ himself. All of us will give an account to God. Well, then you probably want to know what's going to be on the final exam if you're a good student, if you're listening today. The Bible has an answer for you. The Bible says that God will judge every deed that we perform. Notice Romans 2, the sixth verse. Who will render to every man according to his works. What we have actually done will come under the judgment of God. And the Bible says that every idle word that we speak, not just the words that we have thought out well, we've planned and executed with some kind of precision, but every idle word, every passing word that we've ever said will come under the judgment of God. We see this in... Matthew, the 12th chapter, verse 36, where we read, And I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. And if that isn't horrifying enough that God will judge everything you've done and every word you've spoken, the Bible says, every thought you've ever had, every secret thought that you've not divulged to anybody, Everything will come under the judgment of God. Romans 2, verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men according to my gospel by Jesus Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, tells us, Wherefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall each man have his praise from God. And so what's God going to judge you on in the great and final exam that you're to take? He's going to judge you on every deed, every idle word you speak, and every secret thought of your heart. And the standard of that judgment, whether you pass or fail, by the way, this is a pass-fail exam. God is not going to judge on a curve. 
God's not going to be handing out A's, B's, C's, and D's and then finally fail. You're either going to pass that judgment or you're going to fail that judgment of God. And the standard will be God's law. Romans 2 verse 12. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned under the law shall be judged by the law. Jesus tells us as well in John 12:48 that the standard of judgment will be his own word. John 12 the 48th verse. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my sayings hath one that judgeth him. The word that I spake the same shall judge him in the last day. So you know now what God is going to judge on the final day of judgment everything about you. And what will he judge it by his own word and law? The critical issue. The critical issue no matter what else you remember about today's sermon or any other sermon for that matter, the critical issue that you must know as students who are going to come to this final exam, the critical issue is whether you are known by God. Look at Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 22 and 23. Jesus says in the long run, what really counts is whether God knows you. Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy by thy name, and by thy name cast out demons, and by thy name do many mighty works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You may have charismatic manifestations, and God will say to you on the day of judgment, I don't know you. Who are you? I have no part with you. Depart into the outer darkness. The critical issue is whether you are known of God. And to be known of God, you must be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Matthew 22, the 13th verse. Jesus tells a parable about the marriage feast and the slighted invitation. But after the marriage feast is filled we find that there's someone there at the marriage feast that is not wearing the provided wedding garment. Verse 12, And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him out into the outer darkness, and there shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, for many are called and few are chosen. The critical issue is whether God knows you because you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that robe of righteousness which He alone can provide. Or to put it another way, the critical issue is not so much what you have learned in terms of the books, but what God's book will have about you. In Revelation, the 20th chapter, we read, And if any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast alive into the lake of fire. The critical issue is going to come down to whether you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and whether you've given your life to His service. The Bible says even the quality of our work, if we belong to Jesus, even the quality of our work is going to be inspected by God. One more text here, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 12 to 15, Paul says, But if any man builds on the foundation gold, silver, 
costly stones, wood, hay, stubble. Each man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it is revealed in fire. And the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall abide which he built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. We learn here that even if we are Christians, our works will be inspected by God, and it will be conceivable that our works will be utterly consumed in the fiery day of judgment, so that the man's works are consumed and he will suffer loss, yet he himself will be spared from the final judgment. But the works that we perform are going to be evaluated too. And if you want your works to be found acceptable, Paul tells us how in verses 10 and 11 of the same text, according to the grace of God which was given unto me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another buildeth thereupon. Let each man take heed how he builds thereon, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. And so if you are right with God, if you have the righteousness of Christ as your robe of acceptance, and if God will accept you on the final day because you are known by Him as one whose name is written in the book of life, still you must labor diligently, consistently, faithfully, and hard to see to it that the works you've performed are costly like stones that are valuable, are gold or silver, not like wood, hay, and stubble that will be consumed on the final day of fiery judgment. And to be sure of that, make sure that everything you do is laid upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and done by the grace of God that is given us. And then our works will be found acceptable. And so graduates, what's made possible all this learning that you have? And to what use will you put your learning? And finally, are you ready for the final exam over everything that you've learned? I want to close with this illustration. There was once a godly saint who was quite advanced in years in the hospital about ready to die in an oxygen tent, as I recall, being watched over in the hospital continually. Everyone knew, even as he himself knew, that his death was quickly approaching. The attending nurse found to her dismay that when she had gone about doing her chores in the man's room, that the man had reached out of his oxygen tent and had picked up a Bible off of the nearby stand and was now fervently reading his Bible there in his bed. And she walked over and in a scolding mood asked him just what he thought he was doing. And he replied in very comforting words, he said, Nurse, don't worry, I'm just cramming for finals. Graduates, I want you to keep that illustration in mind, not just on your deathbeds, but every day of your lives. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the ability which Wittgenstein said he did not have, an ability to lead our lives, to live our lives, to do everything that we do, every thought that we have and every word that we speak, that everything might be done in the presence of that one prevailing thought that we will face you on the final day and that you will inspect us inside and out and that you will know us and you will know our accomplishments and our downfallings. And so, Lord, we pray that as we remember that final exam that is coming, 
we will prove to be good students of yours, students of your word, all the more disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. Teach us, oh indeed, teach us, that we cannot hope to pass the final day of judgment on our own. Teach us that we will only get through that exam with the help of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and only because of his righteousness, in which we are now clothed by his grace, and only because our names are already written in the book of life. Lord, teach us of your grace, and then make that grace powerful and operative in our lives, that we will, with gratitude in our hearts, and with a vision of your kingdom ahead, wish to serve you every day of our lives, preparing all the more for the final exam, that our deeds might indeed be of the quality gold, silver, and costly stones, that they would not be consumed with fire because they have been things that have not been performed by your grace and on the foundation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray for the graduates who are with us this day, especially the graduates of this year, that you might make their lives a trophy of grace, a trophy of holiness by your grace, and that their lives might prove to be beneficial, profitable for the advance of your kingdom in this world. For we pray in the name of the King, Jesus Christ. Amen.